This is our first time in chapter 2. And, and we're focusing our attention, mainly the, the gospel author is focusing our attention always since the beginning on Jesus Christ and, and the glory of his presence and the gloriousness of the Son. And this cannot be mistaken or undermined or undermound, sorry. This cannot be brushed aside, but our sight and our spiritual sight, like the disciples, are affixed on the person of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more glorious in this world that you'll ever see or ever experience other than the person of Jesus Christ. This, in light of who you are, you can look at yourself every morning, and most of us do. Brush our teeth, we comb our hair, we try to take out the junk from our eyes. And, and, and our wives and our husbands may look at us and say, wow, you're a beautiful specimen. What an amazing person. But even our wives or our husbands don't compare to the glory of Jesus Christ. Friends, if we come to church and we miss the glory of Jesus, we've missed everything. We don't know who he is and we don't, we don't know what we worship. We don't know what we sing to. We don't know where we're attributing glory. And oftentimes it becomes easy to substitute that glory in something or with someone else. And our sight gets scattered all over the earth doing something else and putting our, our fixing our sight on someone else or something else. And that's where we become idolatrous with other things that are not Jesus. And so John has been giving us this, this first-hand account of, of what it is to gaze upon the face and the glory of Jesus Christ. you got to remember those words from chapter 1, verse 14. We have seen your glory. This, is, this causes spiritual trauma in our hearts. And though trauma is a negative word, it's a shock value word where we can really be affixed to the person of Jesus Christ. And so now we're entering the book of signs. We're entering this moment of, 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 of now we get to see Jesus operate at his best. Chapter 2 is the start of, of, as we read earlier, of these wonderful, miraculous signs that Jesus Christ does for the people. And we begin to see him operate as a human being, remember, he is human and he is divine. He is the God-man. And he himself said in chapter 1, I am the son of man. I am the God-man. I am both human and divine. And we get to see him operate within this small context of a wedding. So chapter 2, we have this picture of a wedding in an obscure little town called Cana, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but I want to kind of get your attention on this setting and on this context of the marriage feast and the wedding that's going on here, and although this particular miraculous event has nothing to do with the wedding, it is inside of a wedding that Jesus shows his glory. But I want you to understand what's going on here so you understand what John is writing and why he's writing to the people that he's writing to. 
Immediately in the mindset of, of every first century Jewish person, this wedding feast will automatically recall the stress of throwing and preparing a wedding. It is pressure. It is financial strain. So automatically they get this understanding of knowing what it was for Jesus to be at a wedding. And usually, most, most commonly, you'll, you'll, you'll know or you'll read about this if, if you read the Gospels, that weddings usually took six to seven days. It was a week-long event. You think that our modern-day weddings are stressful. Can you imagine handling six to seven days? That's even more stressful. You have to prepare the activities. You have to prepare the entertainment. You have to give the food. You have to make sure your guests are filled and are enjoying themselves. Now, as an introvert, that is exhausting to me. I, I have trouble entertaining my guests for two hours at my house. You imagine the, the pressure of entertaining guests for six to seven days in this wedding feast. And all the burden falls on top of the groom, the brides, the bridesman, the groom is in charge he is financially in charge, and he is supposed to take charge of everything that is going on here. Now, if we had this customary in our time, it would kind of draw us away from weddings, and we would kind of just be like, let's just get married by the court and call it a day. But this is what's going on in the first century. There is pressure, there is financial strain, and the context of the wedding is simply that. That's why the wedding is mentioned. You'll, you'll begin to feel this as we go along through the story, through the narrative. But some preliminaries are very necessary so that we can get out of the way. In a sense, like I told you, it's not about the wedding. What is this about? What do we know in this story as we read it earlier on? We know that we are in the context of a wedding. We know... Um, that Jesus is there, and his mother is there, and his disciples are there. But what we don't know are some minor details, like whose wedding is it? You know, a lot of us in the Facebook era, we would want to be like, man, whose wedding are you at? We want to kind of know. We're kind of what we say in Spanish, chismosos, or a little bit inquisitive. We don't know whose wedding this is. We don't know who invited Jesus. We don't know why his mother was there before Jesus. We don't know what wedding or whose wedding this is. These are insignificant details that are not mentioned by the author. And this is important because, once again, the story is not about the wedding. What we do know is that it's in a place called Galilee. It's the the area, the location, the zip code of Galilee in a small little obscure town called Cana. It's really insignificant, not mentioned in any of the other Gospels. This is the only place it is mentioned in. And we also know the time frame. It starts off by saying the next day or on the third day in chapter 2. And this we can realize that it becomes the seventh day of Jesus' first week ministry. We know this because in chapter 1, verses 50 and on, he's with Nathaniel on the fourth day. And so 3 plus 4 equals 
7, the third day from that fourth day of Nathaniel's last story, takes place on the Sabbath day. So that becomes very important. Jesus is working a miracle or about to do a sign on the Sabbath day. Now, if we've read the Gospels before, we know why that's important and we know why people would get upset about that. We also know some of the guests that are in this story, like the mother of Jesus, Jesus himself, and the disciples. But I want you to realize this. Jesus' mother plays a minor role in this, in this story. It's like a supporting actor in the story. And obvious main actor will be Jesus Christ. I think the Oscars are going on today, so it might be kind of good to understand supporting roles and lead roles. Uh, but, but she is somewhat of a supporting role here. As a matter of fact, she, her name is never mentioned. It is always the mother of Jesus. As a matter of fact, the Gospel of John entirely, even in chapter 19, while Jesus is hanging on the cross, he looks down to his mother and he calls her mother. I mean, yeah, woman again, or mother. He never calls her by her name. If you're interested, if you do a detailed account of these first 11 to 12 verses in chapter 2, no one is mentioned by name other than Jesus. Here's John putting our attention on Jesus. If you don't get by now that the entire Bible is about Jesus, we're missing the point. Jesus is the main actor. There is no other main activity going on. It's all about Jesus. He's a predominant figure in the gospel's narrative and in this gospel story. He is the one who will do the sign. His mother is there just to provide the details of what the problem is. The gospel story revolves around Jesus and not his mother. Here, it becomes important because she is known as the mother of Jesus. She gets her significance by that title. Where does she get her significance in? That she's the mother of Jesus. It's kind of like when they say, oh, you're this person's son. Oh, you're, that's your father. You, they automatically attribute to you someone else's fame or fortune or notoriety, and you're just whoever that person is. And that becomes important once again because it belabors the fact that she, as the mother of Christ, is subordinate, is under her son, even though she is his physical mother. She derives her significance from Jesus. She presents to us this problem in the narrative. We're, we're in a story here, so we got to understand what's going on in the story. The problem in the story is the, comes out of the mother's mouth. She says, they have no what? No wine. What? No wine at a wedding? Oh, come on. Got to have the wine at a wedding. And for her and for all Jewish customary mindset, this would be an extreme shame and embarrassment to lack or to have been negligent 
on the fact that you did not provide enough wine for your guests. This would be huge because it would not only embarrass the groom, it would not only embarrass the guy that's about to get married, but it would embarrass his entire family. And in Jewish custom, there's a very shameful culture that goes on and they would completely shame you. It goes so much into it that it goes a little bit more beyond shame. In the first century, I was looking up some, some interesting Jewish laws here, and the bride's uh, family would be able to sue the groomsmen for their bereavement. Saying like, man, I came here for, for fun and for wine, and, and because I'm sad now, I'm going to sue that person. And can you imagine the pressure of the groomsmen? It's like, man, that's why I've never liked your family. You know, we should have never invited your family. Uh, you feed your family. And, and so th they could have been sued by not providing the significant amount of wine. The joy of the party. This was negligent, maybe. We don't know. We don't know if the groom had enough money. He may have been expecting 50 people and 100 people showed up. You know, those special guests that know you from way back when you were a kid, they babysat you for two hours while your mom went to get diapers. They showed up. We don't know what happened in the story, but what we do know is that there was no wine. That's the problem in the story. That's the tension in the narrative. Here is the, that tension, that, one, that every story needs attention, every narrative needs tension, and this is the tension. There is no wine. What are we going to do about this? This is a serious matter. But before we move on, we've looked at some of the preliminaries. We looked at the tension, but there's also, you know, there's no, there's no need for certain details that need to be explained and there's also no need to read into things like we are accustomed to do so. Though the wedding is not the point of the story, the drinking matter also isn't the main point of the story. There, there is an eternal question in this Christian world that we live in, even in our time, to kind of look at this and say, Jesus is for drinking or Jesus is against drinking. This is not the point of the story. And I kind of want to get it out of the way before we get further in. There's an eternal question that goes around in the Christian world that says, Can Christians drink? Is it okay to have a couple beers? And this isn't the point. The point here isn't if Christians can drink or cannot. The point is what Jesus is about to do. So we got to get that out of the way, and I'm not going to answer it. And I don't think Jesus answers it in this narrative. This isn't the point. But it also becomes very much important not to read too much into the text. The text itself, in its Greek origin, establishes some very strong connotations of True fermented wine. The fact that it uses the word oinos, which is wine that has been fermented by the, by, the, by the person in charge, this means alcoholic beverage. Now, is Jesus advocating people to, to drink? This is not the point of the story. 
But what the Greek also says is, in, I like the way the ESV says it, it kind of uh, skips around the matter. In, in verse 4, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Sorry, skip down to verse 8. Sorry, verse 10. And, and he said to me, everyone serves a good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, that's the ESV's version. That's the way they use it to say when everyone is drunk. The word matheusko really means drunk. When people are drunk, the ESV kind of covers it up a little bit and says when they've drunk freely or when they drank freely. So the, the fact that it uses these two literal words to imply strong fermented drink and people getting drunk, it, it, it doesn't argue for Jesus advocating for alcohol or for people getting drunk. We can't say here and say, oh, we see Jesus is providing even more alcohol so people could get even more drunk. That's not the case. So I just kind of want to sweep that away. Get that off your mind and I, and I understand full well that this may be the only thing on your mind for the rest of the morning. That was my fault. I should have saved it to the end, but kind of wanted to get it out of the way so I don't have to deal with it later on as I get into the text. Anyway, if you want to talk more about drinking or, or if drink, Christians could drink or could not, talk to Henry at the end of the service. He'd be more than willing to go through all of that with you. But for now, in chapter 2, there is no answer and there is no main point on drinking. However, as we get into the story, we'll start separating the scenes. There's two major scenes, and if you, have, if you like to write down notes and you kind of want to follow along, there's two major scenes in this story. The first scene takes place within verses 1 through 5, and the second scene takes place from verses 6 through 11. And we could throw in verse 12 in there, but I'll use that verse in, the next, uh, in our next gathering. Um, but it's kind of within the story too. So there's two separate scenes, two separate climactic points, two separate main ideas. And so in the first scene, within the first two verses, I'm going to read them again, but this provides our scene, the background information. So read with me the first two verses in chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, with his disciples. So we'll stop there. That's the background information to scene one. What's important about this background information so we could understand the story a little bit? I know background information sometimes is boring, but it's good for us to understand why it's there in the first place. So we've already mentioned a bit about the third day being on the seventh day of his first week's ministry. It's the Sabbath. It's a kind of an introductory way to prove once more that Jesus is greater than the Old Testament law. And in chapter 5, chapter 8, and chapter 9, or chapter 7, Jesus will be doing many more miracles on the Sabbath. What it goes to show is a preparatory advance on what Jesus is completing here on earth. The Jewish law and Jewish custom was that nothing could be done on the Sabbath, but Jesus will perform his first miracle on the Sabbath, emphasizing his power and his authority 
over the Sabbath and introducing a new messianic age. This is a subtle but very clear way to emphasize Jesus' authority over the Sabbath. But also, this background information provides us once more on this natural geography of where Jesus was. And why is this important, friends? Because people have made a case to prove that Jesus was not really a real person. Wasn't really real. Pardon the redundancy there. But they use the case that Jesus was made up or that there was a type of figure, but there was many others like him in the first century. What John uses here, and I like the way Luke does it a little bit more detailed since Luke is more of a historian. But John introduces us to us this wonderful narrative of where Jesus is and the days that he takes to walk from one place to the other. And where he's at when he's beginning his ministry. He's in Galilee. Not a good place to be. It's not the capital. It's not Jerusalem. Like I mentioned a couple, a couple weeks ago, Jerusalem is about 100 miles south. Kind of where Jesus was born, in Bethlehem, it's, it's south. He's not in a popular area. He's not in a place where the whole world will see what he's about to do. He's in some small town called Cana. It's kind of insignificant. It's kind of in the shadows. And it's not really an important town in biblical times. Except for the fact that Jesus performs his first miraculous event. Further on in the New Testament, we get the recollection of this small and significant town because of what Jesus did there. It's kind of like when we say we're from Cicero, a lot of us here that, that live in Cicero, and if you're not from Cicero, sorry for, for excluding you in this, but when people ask me, hey, where are you from? They, they, I, I get to ask, oh, I'm from Cicero, and they're like, Cicero, and they don't, you know, and I'm like, Al Capone, and, and, and so they're like, oh. Okay, I know where that's at. Or I have to say, uh, you know, Oak Park. You know, we're by Oak. Oh, Oak Park, Frank Lloyd Wright. Yes, okay, you're around that area. It's kind of like that. It's just a little mingly town out in the outskirts. No one cares about it. But it gives us the importance of Jesus walking around. Of Jesus being present. Of Jesus being seen. Of Jesus being evident. That his ministry was alive and well, even in obscure places. And this is the very beginning. Later on in his life, he begins to move south. But here it becomes important to, to know where he's at because of what the final verse says. And we'll get to that. So in verse 3, we get to the main issue of this story in the first scene. What does verse 3 say? When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now the immediate question here in the story is, why does, why does the mother care? Why is she involved in this? Well, as any regular mother, I mean, there, there is so much allegorical uh, stories about Mary in this particular story. There's some weird stories that go out as to her significance in the story. And even in the Roman Catholic world, they use this story to show that Mary becomes the mediatorial uh, intervention between humanity and Jesus Christ. She is the the mediator between us. And, and they use that, and they use this story to prove it. 
But this story has nothing to do with Mary being the mediatorial woman in this, in the whole drama of Christianity. She's not even mentioned by name. It would be good if we were to worship Mary as mediator for us to know her name in the Gospel of John. But she's not even mentioned. And the, what Jesus answers, later on we'll go to prove it a little bit more. But why does she ask for help? And why does she look to Jesus? It could be very allegorically and say, you see, even Mary understood that Jesus, her son, would bring a miracle in the time of the feast. In reality... If we want to take the story at face value and use the other Gospels for supporting evidence, the reality uh, is that Joseph, the father, has become absent in the narrative. Matter of fact, the Gospel of John doesn't mention Joseph other than when other people say, oh, that's Mary and Joseph's son, kind of like speaking very, like, just passing by and don't, don't, not really putting attention on him. But Joseph is not mentioned any other time in the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of Luke, Joseph is not mentioned after the whole temple incident when Jesus was at the temple. How old was Jesus when they found him at the temple? He was 12 years old. He was a little kid. After that, he is no longer mentioned in the story. He isn't at the cross. He isn't in any big major scene in the life of Jesus. Joseph is absent. It could be Joseph had passed away. Joseph had died. And what happened was that Jesus took the leading male role in the family. He is the firstborn. He is the man of the house. He becomes the worker of the house. In, in Matthew, he is known as the carpenter's son. In Mark, he is known as the carpenter. Jesus takes on the role of work. He takes on the role of making money as the breadwinner for the home and becomes this type of stability for the household. So what does Mary do and how does Mary react to this? How does his mother react? Well, it becomes very well um, known in even our modern day culture that when you're a widower and you have an older son, you rely on your son for help. For his resourcefulness. He is the one that's bringing in the money. He is the one that's moving the family along. And as you know in, in this story in the gospel of John. In chapter 7 and in other gospels. He, Jesus has other brothers to have to deal with. And so Jesus becomes this resourceful human being. Bringing money to the house where his mom identifies him as someone that could do something. Maybe he has a little bit extra cash to bring to the wedding. Maybe he could send his disciples out to go get some wine quickly. What the mother attributes here is the sense of shame for the poor groomsmen. It's like that typical mother that's like, ay pobrecito. Like, oh my God, poor guy, he's going to, they're going to like eat him alive. And you know weddings, man, everyone criticizes everything. Oh, chicken again? Are you serious? Like every wedding I have to go to, it's chicken and pasta, chicken. And, and every, like you're never going to say, if you're about to get married, friends, you're never going to satisfy anybody. It's just like, just, just order tacos and bam, call it a day. It's good. Everyone, no one will be upset with tacos. It's just, it's an amazing thing. But, but the mother is kind of like, oh, poor guy. 
They're going to make fun of him. They're going to, they might sue him. She's feeling this compassion towards him. And so she kind of wants to let her son know what's going on. And, and she comes to him with that. We can't give any more of an allegorical expression than what's there. This is what was happening. And this is what we find as the story plays out. Jesus is only sought after because of his resourcefulness to his mother. It's likely that she was not expecting a miracle because Jesus had not performed any miracles prior to this. There's, there's Gnostic writings that say that Jesus turned clay pigeons into real birds, but those are Gnostic writings from the 2nd and 3rd century. Those aren't true facts of Jesus' life. So Mary doesn't know, his mother doesn't know that he could perform miracles because he hasn't done so up until that point. So we can't attribute more to the mother than what's already there. She's just expressing the need. She, ex she is expressing the concern. So we move on in the scene and we get to this wonderful interaction with Jesus and his mother. In verses 4 and 5, the word of God says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. It's kind of an interesting interaction. Just, if you're writing this, if you're a writer in a, in a play or in a movie, this interaction would kind of not make any sense. Mary presents the problem. Jesus talks about an hour not happening. And then Mary somehow realizes to tell her the servants to do whatever he says. It, it's kind of confusing. It doesn't, it doesn't show us what's really going on. And so in this interaction, we get this sense of pause. And many have said that when Jesus re responds to his mother, he's doing it in a rather harsh way. When he says, woman. But like I mentioned earlier, Jesus says this exact title in chapter 19 when he's on the cross and caring for her by telling the, the, the disciple, John, to be the one that will help her once he is gone. So this isn't a rash term. This isn't a harsh term. This isn't like, woman, what? what? You know, people have interpreted it like that, like kind of saying like Jesus was upset Jesus was not upset, but does bring a form of pause. This does set up for us a theological understanding of who Jesus was and what he was there to do. Would Mary know what he means by the hour? What is Jesus speaking of when he mentions the hour? And would she know what this means? So what he does in a loving tone, but rather sternly, kind of, you know, no-nonsense type of approach, he puts pause. He says, stop. His work is independent from her. What Jesus does here is, is, is he sets up the beginning of what is to come. He came to do the Father's will. He came to do what the Father has told him to do, and no one else will Mark or plan for Jesus, not even his own mother. Now, with mother and child, it's like, oh, my God, that's a set. But it, that's why Jesus separates it. That's why Jesus pauses it right there. 
No, mom, I'm here to do my father's work. Not you, not my disciples, no one else will manage me. I won't bow to anyone else's claim or or call because I'm here to do my purpose, which is to do the Father's work, which is what he repeats in John chapter 5, verse 30. So her intercession or her claim doesn't move him. We can't confuse this miraculous sign with attributing it to Mary. And so Jesus makes that point very clear. The fact that he does it doesn't prove that Mary's intercession was actually successful. Becomes evident what Jesus does is out of his grace and mercy. And so this phrase in these verses when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, what is he speaking on? And would Mary have understood him? It could be possible that she began to understand, knowing that the other disciples were there, and what what was going on. We don't know exactly how the other disciples arrived. John never mentions how the other disciples arrived, other than the first four that we saw in chapter 1. But it could be that there's a beginning of understanding in the life of Jesus. What was Jesus' mission here on earth? Well, John chapter 7, chapter 8, Chapter 13 and chapter 17 points us to the hour being his glorification. What does Jesus mean by my hour has not yet come? His glory. What was his glory? When he would die, hang on a cross, and then resurrect to wipe us away from all of our sins. That time of his working was not yet. But there was a commencement. And that's why the Gospel of John opens up with this book of signs early on in chapter 2. And it finishes with the same uh, sentiment in chapter 20. Signs were done for the belief, for the faith of those who would follow. And so John here is worried to show us that Jesus' intention to do the Father's will was focused. His plan was Focused. I came to do my Father's will, and it is the hour that I'm working towards. I'm working towards this moment of being glorified in my death and in my resurrection. Jesus wasn't controlled by the wine dilemma. As a matter of fact, in his expression, he could care less if the wedding had wine or not. That wasn't his issue. The plea of a mother wasn't moving on his soul, but it was the hour he was anticipating. So Mary, his mother, does what any good woman would do, realizing that her son has authority, realizing that her son is the son of God. She tells the servants, do whatever he tells them. Why is that important? I want, to, I want to read that with you again. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This transition between scene one and scene two is very important. Because in this transitional statement, what Mary is doing is, hey, at the end of the day, it's not about me. 
I'm not in charge here. You do whatever Jesus says. Who's in charge in this story? Jesus. Who works out the sign? Jesus. It's interesting that the mother of Jesus kind of fades away in the background in scene two. So I don't know if we could even categorize her as a, in a supporting role because she's not part of the story after the first five verses. The climactic part, she is not even mentioned. Mary fades into the background in scene one and stepping up in scene two, it is what she had said to the servants that is this transitional emphasis. Do as he says. And Jesus now steps into this role as, a, as the mediator of all humanity and begins to bring the reality up front. Okay, it's time to get to work. It's time to show what I can do. In a sense, he is not willing to go full-on blast with a mountain of Sinai experience with the glory of the clouds coming down over the people. He's not ready to do that because his hour was not yet formed. He still had to live and do ministry for a couple of years up until that moment in time where he would face the cross. And so in verse 6, if you read with me, it says, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Okay, so these six jars are an important role because they contain or they will contain this sign that will come to be within the story. Why are these jars important, though, and why are they there? Well, the author gives us some background information here, too. Because if we were to just read, there were six jars there, we would be like, well, okay, there could have been eight, there could have been ten. Or, it doesn't matter if these jars were there or not. But the writer says, these jars were there for the Jewish rites of purification. These were jars that contained ceremonial aspect and significance to them. And they were stone jars because that, that means that they wouldn't contain anything contaminated in them. What were they for? They were for the daily washing. Before you ate, ate before you, you, you spent time, before you slept. It, the, the Jewish custom was to wash, wash, wash. That's why there was a lot. Because their religion their tradition, their ceremonialism was there for them to continuously wash the exterior. And like verse 1 mentions, the third day, the Sabbath day, Jesus comes to establish a new order. These jars here serve the purpose to establish a new order in Jesus Christ. These jars symbolized an empty religion in Jewish customary law. Jesus would say in Luke, you guys are worried about washing the outside of the cup, but have forgotten to wash the inside. Jewish law and custom was worried about washing the outside, but didn't really care about what's going on 
on the inside. And so what Jesus does in doing this miraculous sign by bringing these jars in is that he's ushering a new moment, a new time, a new messianic community where it doesn't have to deal with the external anymore. And this water that was going to be used to wash would no longer be used or no longer be necessary. These empty pots not only reflect the empty spiritual state of the the Jewish people, they reflect a moment in time when Jesus is about to break from religious paradigms. And so Jesus does this, and what does he do? He replaces the water with something better. And when wine is introduced later on, these pots will never be used to do ceremonial cleansings again because they're worthless they've been contaminated by wine they could only maintain pure water jesus replaces it with something better this these jars not only are there to show us the lack of spiritual discernment in jewish community they also reflect the abundance of what jesus will do 20 to 30 some say 50 gallons of 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 or 50 Jars would equal 120 to 180 gallons of water. Now, if you're a painter, have you ever carried a five-gallon bucket? So picture a five-gallon bucket, 30 to 40 of them. It's a lot. It's an abundance. There was lack. There was empty jars that have been replaced with the abundance of Christ. Then The people and the guests would never know that Jesus did this, but he does it for them. Without them ever knowing. This proves what John chapter 10 verse 10 will say. That he came to give life and life in abundance. These jars are very symbolic of what Jesus is doing. We can't just brush them aside. They are there to show us there is a new moment. No more religion is needed in Jesus Christ. And so verse 7 and 8 say... Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. What's interesting here is that the servants, in their eagerness, fill the water jars up to the brim. Now, did Jesus tell them to do that? No. But they did. What does it mean? It means that they were overflowing. They were filled And the amount of effort it took to fill those jars, I mean, it's it's a lot. Can you imagine? You don't have a car in those days. You had to go draw the water from somewhere close by and then physically carry them over. And they were filled to the brim. No more room because now the ceremonial aspect is done with. There's no more room for ceremonial washing or cleansing. There's no more room for religious ceremonies. Now, it's the abundance of Christ that will take place in these empty jars that will give life to the party. Now, you got to remember, we're in the context of a wedding. That's why we stated in the beginning, the wedding has nothing really to do with what Jesus does. However, it's in this wedding where he does this sign. And it shows once more that this prophetic reality of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament is still carrying on in the New Testament. Jeremiah, Hosea, and Amos, and Ezekiel 
even prophesy that when the Messiah comes, there will be an abundance and an overflow of wine. Remember what Hosea says in chapter 14, verse 7. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. There will be an abundance of wine because the prophetic Messiah is present. In verse 9 and 10, if you read that with me, when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely or got drunk, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine up until now. The master of the feast here, if we connect it with John chapter 3, where Jesus is compared to the bridegroom, what we see here is that Jesus is the better bridegroom. Jesus is the better groom. Jesus will provide a wedding for his people. If you read Revelation chapter 19, hey, that's the climactic story for us. We will sit on the table with Jesus. But guess what? On his table, the wine will never go empty because he is the perfect groom. So what this does here in the story is that it compares time and time again the bridegroom with Jesus. Not only in this story, but in other stories, we'll see the comparison that everyone will always fall short when they are compared to Jesus, the true master of the feast, the true bridegroom who will gather his church. And it goes to show that what Jesus did was real. The master of the feast tasted it and said, whoa, this is legit. This is the good wine. Why? I will end with this. In verse 11, here is the purpose of the story. This the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Why did Jesus do this? Was it to please his mother? Was it to please the guest? Was it to please the bridegroom? It was to show a glimpse of his glory. Why do I say glimpse? Because only the servants, only the disciples, and only the mother knew what was going on. No one else knew what happened. Not even the bridegroom. Bridegroom could have been like, oh, yeah, man, yeah, that was me. Yeah, I brought that. You know, everyone was going to attribute the wine to the bridegroom. But Jesus is demonstrating to who? Who's the focus here? And his disciples, what? Believed when his disciples see the glory of Jesus Christ in this small, little, insignificant town, in an insignificant wedding that wasn't even named. We don't even know who is in this wedding. When they see this, this sign will affirm their following. I follow Jesus, and now more than ever, I will follow because I have identified the glory of God inside of Jesus. One day, friends, this same glory that's in Christ, we will share in heaven. Paul says in chapter 
chapter one, uh, Corinthians 1, chapter 15, 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We're all going to share in this glory. So why don't we stand up this morning and thank God for him always supplying and filling the need of his people. Bow your heads with me this morning. Father, we are eternally grateful. Completely in awe of what you do. Lord, and it is in stories like this that we begin to see what you wanted to do and where you were going. Father, you've shown us your glory in the little things, in the great things, in the miraculous event of giving us a new life when we didn't deserve it. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for calling us to you when we were bad people. Lord, we are here now with this ability to praise you, sing to you, pray to you, because you are good. Thank you for providing for our need. Thank you for washing away our cheap religion and giving us new wine. Thank you for your joy. Thank you for your life. And we celebrate that every Sunday in Jesus' name. Amen. Give God a round of applause this morning.